All right. Well, I know you all are uh, enjoying your time of fellowship and food, and far be it from me to interrupt that, but I was ordered by Pat to get back to work. So, so if I have to work, you have to work. So if you can make your way back in. Apparently, uh, some of you were troubled by something that I said in the first session. And we need a clarification. Apparently, this has caused a bit of a stir, a theological controversy. Your pastor did not take me to Culver's <laughs> for dinner last night, for the record. I was speaking evangelistically about Culver's. He's taking me there tonight. <laughs> the first session was about, we'll, we'll make this a nice, I grew up Baptist. <clears throat> and Baptists are good at alliterated outlines. So the first session was scripture. This session is going to be salvation. And the third session is going to be sanctification. So we talked about Scripture. Now we're going to talk about what Scripture talks about, which is the gospel. So we're going to talk about salvation. And to get at salvation, we're going to spend some time at Wittenberg, Luther's city. Uh, this is our tour through Germany. We had our city of Constance down on the southern border, up a little bit north to Worms. Now we're going to go further north, up close to Berlin, up to Wittenberg. This is where Luther set up shop. This is where he remained for his career as a reformer under the protective wing of Frederick the Wise. And Frederick the Wise was committed to devotion. He was a very devout man. And he was also committed to academics, to the intellect. And so his two pet projects at Wittenberg were the church and the college, the cathedral and the university. And Frederick was going to see that his young university just started in the late 1400s, that this young university would rise and be right up there with Cambridge and Oxford and Paris. And so these two pet projects of his, the cathedral and the university, he had then, of course, his favorite son, Luther, at the helm of both. And so Luther ran the church, and he ran the university. And Frederick the Wise pulled out all stops, no uh, resources left untapped for Luther to develop those two institutions. And that becomes the bulk of Luther's life there as he holds forth at Wittenberg. But in between, Luther traveled around Germany. In fact, he was born at Eisleben, and by a strange twist of providence, he ends up dying at Eisleben. He dies in the very same town in which he was born, even though in between his home was Wittenberg. By at the time of Luther's death, it's there for you February 18th, 1546, in your outlines, the church at Eisleben was in a crisis with the city council of Eisleben. And you can imagine what press the Catholic forces had made of this. Here's Luther's own hometown, and the church can't hold it together. Now, Luther at this point in his life was exhausted. In fact, he was given the month of February off to recover. When he preached his Final Sunday in January, the church retired him to a sabbatical. He was at the point of exhaustion. Luther was preaching on average seven times a week. Seven times a week. There were daily services held at the university cathedral for the students. Luther was an advocate of the early service. You have two services here and you have an early service. Luther wanted the church service to be at 5 a.m. 
The church wouldn't go for that. They compromised, and the early service was at 6. These are Germans. These are tough people. They get up early, these Germans. The Luther would preach on Sundays, obviously, but then he would preach five times or so throughout the week, preaching twice on Sunday. So he's preaching seven times a week on average. He's lecturing at the university, and he lectures Monday through Friday at the university in the mornings. He is constantly, his home is just constantly visited by dignitaries and theologians and scholars who come there to spend time with Luther. He's constantly at at, at making himself available to his students. And then every morning, Luther invites the children of the town to come into his house as he instructs his own children in his own catechism that he wrote and instructs the children of Wittenberg in the catechism. This is a very busy man. He's writing, Mark Knoll estimates, the story Mark Knoll estimates that Luther writes a significant, not quite a book, but a significant writing every two weeks of his adult life. His collected writings are 150 volumes plus. So by the end of January 1546, he was at the point of exhaustion and his church gave him a sabbatical. But word came to Luther of this conflict between the council and the church at Eisleben. So Luther travels to Eisleben. And on their way in the winter, an ice piece of ice had broken loose from the river, uh, sort of a side of the river, and ran into the side of a bridge and knocked a bridge out. And this would have made Luther and his party go about a week out of their way to travel to the next town, cross the river, and come back up and go on their journey. So they decide to just go across the river without the bridge. And in doing so, the boats were all put up for the winter. They wouldn't cross the river, and the bridge was there anyway. In doing so, they all got soaking wet. Their their supplies got wet. Their clothes got wet. Luther, being at the state of exhaustion, contracted pneumonia the next day. They had to stop. They actually thought Luther was going to die. He recovered, and they soldiered on to Eisleben. Luther recovers enough to preach. He preaches three times in one day meets with the council, meets with the church, is able to bring them together to reconcile these two parties, and then he falls terribly ill. They convert one of the first floor rooms of the the church there at Eisleben into a makeshift hospice room for Luther. And it was one of those interior rooms that had uh, the, the concrete sort of arches but did not have stone arches but did not have any windows in those arches in this interior room. And Luther could look through one of those arches and see the baptismal font where he was baptized as an infant back in 1483. And just imagine what was going through his mind. How the world had changed from 1483 to 1546. And he himself was at the center of that change. When Luther was born, you only had two choices, the Roman Catholic Church or paganism. That was it. There was no other church. There was no other game in town. And then by Luther's death, this thing we call Protestantism was given birth. And we have the denominations that stem from it today. Well, as Luther lay dying in that makeshift hospice room, he had one more sermon in him. And his sermon consisted of simply quoting two biblical texts. The first biblical text he quoted was Psalm 68, 19 to 20. Psalm 68, 19 to 20 reads this. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. Our God is a God of salvation. And then Luther 
finishes his sermon by quoting, and I kid you not, John 3.16. Just like the guys at the football games that throw out the banner. John 3.16. Our God is a God of salvation, and that salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. That's Luther's farewell sermon. Luther's come a long way, hasn't he? Not just from that baptismal font when he was an infant. But remember when he was first studying Paul and Augustine, what Luther said? I hate this righteous God who demands of me righteousness. And as Luther goes out of this world, he says, Blessed be the God of our salvation. Because he had learned that this righteousness that God demands of us does not come from us, but it comes from Christ. That in between this righteous judge and Luther standing under this righteous judge, knees knocking, afraid for his life, and this peace at his deathbed, the linchpin, the hinge, is Jesus Christ and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The twin principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura and sola fide, that as we read scripture, we are gently led by the hand, or in some cases, grabbed by the collar, and led right to Christ on the cross and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This final sermon of Luther shows us what Luther's life was all about and what the Reformation was all about. Well, let's fill in the picture a little bit. After Worms, Luther sets up shop at Wittenberg. He first goes to the Wartburg, the castle of Frederick the Wise, He hides out there until things blow over. Excommunicated, he has a death sentence over his head. And Frederick the Wise was able to protect him, but it'd be better that Luther chill out for a while, and the Vorpberg was a perfect place. Actually, it was a very scary place. It was one of these big castles that was very dry. You know, you get the impression, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in a castle in Europe? No, it would not be great to live in a castle in Europe in the 1500s. No running water, cold stone walls, and lots of things that go bump in the night. And Luther spent many nights at the Wartburg in depression, in anxiety, Again, what if I'm wrong? To go against the church meant excommunication. And excommunication means you are damning your soul to hell. That's what excommunication means. An early church father gave us a statement, outside of the church there is no salvation. And that statement, by the time of Luther's day, came to mean outside of the official church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. There is no salvation. But something happened. After a long night of a thunderstorm, and you can imagine wooden shutters clanging in the night, and thunder rolling, lightning striking, the next day Luther wakes up. And he walks out on one of the balconies of the castle. And as he walks out onto the castle... He scares off a group of birds that were situated on the turrets. And as they fly off, Luther notices, you know, after a heavy rain and it just clears out the skies and the next morning there's just a clarity and a beauty and a brightness. And it was that kind of a morning. And as the birds flew off, Luther says to himself, it's as if they carried all of my doubts right along with them. And a peace just settled over Luther's soul. The comfort of the gospel 
settled over Luther's soul. And so he returns to Wittenberg. Now, usually in history, we have the visionary, and then we have the people who come along the visionary to implement the vision, the organizers, to put the thing on the ground and get it moving. Luther is both. He doesn't die after Worms. He's got 26 more years of life in him. And he devotes those 26 years of life to establishing this thing he started. In Germany, it was called the Evangelische Church, the Gospel Church. And they liked Luther so much, they called it the Lutheran Church. But this is what he was committed to. And Wittenberg was his home base. Now, to get at Luther, I wanted to look at some roles of his. And there were all these tracts against Luther written by Roman Catholics in his day. And one of them called Luther a seven-headed monster. And the middle head was Luther. And it was this picture of Luther with all these heads. And one of these seven heads, his head was shaped like a beehive. And his hair was all mussed up. And his eyes were going all directions. And there were bees circling around his head. And it was Luther the madman. Which apparently, if you have bees circling around your head, you're likely mad. So just keep that in mind. And then there was Luther's Antichrist, returning the favor in these seven heads. So inspired by that, I want to call Luther the seven-headed leader and take it in a different direction and look at some of the aspects of Luther's life. And there's two in particular that we're going to camp out on. One in the middle, Luther as a theologian, a one-note theologian, and then Luther as a pastor. But I want to look at all seven of these. First is Luther as educator. I mentioned this, that if you were a child in the city of Wittenberg, the town of Wittenberg, you could come into Luther's house and listen to him teach the catechism. About 1526, Luther recognizes that if anything is going to make this thing stick, the Reformation, it's going to rely on how well they teach the next generation. In fact, Luther says this. If we don't programmatically, systematically, intentionally teach the next generation the gospel, all our efforts are in vain. That if we don't make the next generation our priority, all our efforts are for nothing. I'm so glad that they're behind those closed doors are the kids. Well, not that I'm glad they're behind those closed doors. It didn't come out right. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. And Luther put his money where his mouth was. He didn't just talk about the next generation. He wrote his catechism for the next generation. The child's catechism, the kinder catechismus published in 1527. And when Luther dies, Luther was, uh, he was one for extremes. Nothing was, was mild for Luther. He wasn't a halfway guy. So on his deathbed, he says, you can burn all my books except for two, the bondage of the will and the children's catechism. He didn't even want the 95 theses to be around. The bondage of the will and the children's catechism. It was one of his singular achievements. Teaching the next generation, programmatically, intentionally, that church and parents together join forces to teach the next generation. The most dangerous thing to do is to assume that because our kids are in the proximity of the gospel, that they will catch the gospel. It is the most dangerous assumption we can make. Luther, the educator, and not just the educator of children, but also seminary training. Wittenberg was a training center for missionaries to all of Europe. There's a poem written by a student who went there who talks about the the Poles and the Bohemians and the Russians, the Slovaks, The Finns that came to Wittenberg studied under Luther and took the gospel back to their homeland. In fact, 
Luther writes his first hymn because of students of his that were martyred. They were from Finland. And they came to Wittenberg to study under Luther. And they were taught the gospel. And they go back to Finland and they were met at the border and they had no Frederick the Wise who would protect them. And they were arrested and they were asked, will you preach Luther's doctrines? And they said yes. And they were martyred. And the word came back to Luther and Luther wrote his first hymn. A 17-stanza folk ballad commemorating their lives and their deaths. And it was called, A New Song Shall Here Be Begun. It's much cleaner in the German, but that's how it comes off in the English. A new song shall here be begun. That Luther focused his efforts on training these students so that the gospel could spread. In fact, Luther says, what good is it that we have the gospel here in Germany? When, and he starts ticking off a list of European countries, when there is yet to be a gospel presence in these countries. And then he says, and when there is yet to be a gospel presence in the other continents. What good is it that we have this gospel in our tiny corner when there is a world in need of the gospel? So Luther was an educator so that the gospel would spread through the church, through the home, and through his beloved university. Luther was also a musician. In fact, it was said of Luther that he was as good of a musician as he was a theologian, a compliment that goes both ways to his music and to his theology. His instrument of choice was the lute. Sorry, Dustin, not the drums, but it was the lute, a precursor to the guitar. And Luther gave us a wonderful gift. Prior to Luther's day, if you were in the church service and you were so moved of gratitude for God that you just wanted to sing praises to him, you could not do it. Congregational singing was forbidden in the church. In the small churches, there just was no singing. In the large cathedrals, there were the cathedral choirs, the professional choirs, or the boys' choirs that sang for you. And of course, all the singing was in Latin. And Luther comes along and introduces congregational singing in the German language. Think about how moving it was to stand up on a Saturday morning and sing of the glory of our Redeemer. What a great privilege it is to stand up in the house of God, join our voices together with other believers, and lift our praises to God. And every time we do it, in the back of your head, you should be saying, thank you God for Martin Luther. For his innovation." of congregational singing in our modern church. Luther wrote a number of hymns after he wrote his folk ballad. Of course, his most famous one is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I often think if that was the only thing Luther had ever done, just written A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he still would be worth a conference every now and again. If that was the only thing he did, Right, a mighty fortress is our God. In the course of his lifetime, he wrote 27 hymns. You have to find an old Lutheran hymnal to find them. But he wrote 27 altogether. And a mighty fortress is our God is the one we all know. Luther was also a bit of a politician, although he'd be very mad at me if I were to call him a politician. Luther said, if you have no other thing you can do for your life, with your life, 
if there is no other profession for you and you need to feed your family, then maybe consider being a politician. We don't have a television at home, uh, not because we're fundamentalists. We just don't have one. And I'm so glad this time of year that we don't have one so that we don't have to listen to political advertisements round the clock. Luther was suspicious of politics. But at the same time, Luther held that the word of God touched every area of life. And even though he was loath to admit it, he had to admit that politics deals with our life and that the gospel speaks to that. Prior to Luther, there were two schools of thought. One school of thought said that the kingdom of this world has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They are two separate kingdoms and they have nothing to do with each other. The other school of thought is what we call Christendom. And in Christendom, there's almost a confusion between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So we speak of the Holy Roman Empire, which as historians like to say, was not all that holy, wasn't very Roman, and actually wasn't much of an empire. But this confusion of church and state, mixing and mingling of church and state, and those were the two schools of thought, that the kingdom of God had nothing to do with the kingdom of the world, or a confusion of the two. Luther came along, and if you can picture this in your mind, instead of having two separate circles, or instead of having a circle that's all intertwined, two circles intertwined, Luther had two circles that sort of overlapped. Because the reality is that we are citizens of this world too. And the reality is, as Isaac Watts, the English hymnal version of Martin Luther, told us, based on the Psalms, this is my father's world. Based on the doctrine of creation, we as Christians have something at stake in what happens in the public square. Notice what Luther says. Not the church, but Christians have something at stake in the public square. And so, and then Luther says this. If, God want, if the point was the kingdom of God, why doesn't he just take us when he saves us? Like some transporter pod that we get saved and we hop into and then we get zipped right to heaven. We're left here to be Christ on earth. And that engages the civil life. So Luther would be mad if we called him a politician. Maybe we should just call him Luther the civilian. Luther the citizen. And then there's Luther the theologian. I want to camp out here a little bit with you. In fact, I want to show you what I think is a brilliant piece of biblical theology with Luther. Now, I waited to do this for you so that your mind could be moving. You've had some coffee. You're awake now. So now we can work together. So you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and work with me a little bit on this one. Luther was preaching through, teaching through Romans a second time from 1518 to 1519. And it is then, by his own admission, that he's converted after the 95 Theses, which is interesting. And in that second time of teaching through Romans, he lands on Romans 3, 21 to 25. Now, I've reprinted it for you in your outline. And you may want to look at it in your outline and then use your Bible and go to Exodus chapter 25. Now, you can look at Romans 3 in your Bible if you want, but it might be easier if you hold the outline there because you have the text in your outlines, your nice little booklet, and find Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. Now, the reason Luther was drawn to Exodus 25 is because as he was teaching through Romans chapter 3, at verse 25, he came across a rare word in the Greek New Testament. And the rare word is the Greek word, don't worry about this, trying to get this down, it's called hilasterion. Hilasterion. It's translated in the ESV as propitiation. And it's in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 that God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation. 
as a hilasterion for our sins. For us. The same word is used by John when John says that Christ is a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And those are the only two places this word occurs in the New Testament. And Luther was trying to get a handle on the full weight of this word and how it functioned. And Luther was not big on Hebrew. He knew his Hebrew, but he didn't really enjoy Hebrew. I take great comfort in that. I took great comfort in that through my seminary years. My philosophy is anybody who teaches Greek or Hebrew is a sadist at heart. The meanest people on the face of God's earth teach Greek and Hebrew in seminary. I'm convinced of it. Except the master's seminary, of course. (laughs) I'm talking about the East Coast where the weather makes us grumpy. So Luther read the Old Testament in the Greek more than in the Hebrew. And he remembered reading this word, hilasterion, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and sometimes we call it the LXX, the 70, because there's this legend that was translated by a group of 70 people. The LXX, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And Luther remembered in his reading of Exodus chapter 25, that he came across this word, hilasterion. Now, let me go to Exodus 25 with you. The context here is of the tabernacle. And you know the context of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where God, the physical, visible representation of God dwelling with his people. And it was at the center of the camp. And at the center of the tabernacle courtyard is the tabernacle. And at the center of it is the Holy of Holies. And at the center of the Holy of Holies is the ark. And on the top of the ark is the mercy seat. It is at the geographical center of the camp of Israel. And that was metaphorical. It was symbolic to represent that God is at the center of his people. And if you were an Israelite camped out around the tabernacle and you couldn't sleep at night, you pulled back the, the, the cover of your tent, you'd see the pillar of fire overhead of the tabernacle. And you knew that God dwelled among you. You were assured of God's presence. Well, here we have the instructions for this. The instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the ark. And here's what God told Moses. At Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. There, there, I will meet you. There, a holy God meets with a sinful people. And from above the mercy seat. Now this word mercy seat in Hebrew is the word kaporet. And it plays off of a word in there, kapor. You might have heard of Yom Kippur. Not Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday of the Day of Atonement. The word kapor actually comes into the English as the word cover. And that's what the word literally means, to cover, to atone. Its theological meaning is a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that atones, covers sin. And the mercy seat, the Hebrew word for mercy seat is kaporet. As if you are saying a place of atonement. Now here's the beauty. The Septuagint uses the word Hilasterion for mercy seat. The Septuagint translation of Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, of the Hebrew word kaporet, the English word mercy seat, is Hilasterion 
propitiation. And a light bulb went off in Luther's head. And when he got back to Romans chapter 3, this is what he said. Christ is our mercy seat. And at the cross, in Christ, at the cross, is where God meets us. There, God declares. There, in a person, on the cross, in a place in time in history, there I will meet you. And Luther is overwhelmed by this. And he asks a question. What is God doing on the cross? And it's not an informational question. Like, what is he doing there? It's, a, it's an astounded question. This is the God of the universe. This is the holy, righteous, perfect God who created all things. And he's hanging on a cross made of wood that Christ himself created. Luther loved irony. And the cross is full of irony. And not only is he on this cross, but he is bearing the cup of God's wrath. The word propitiate, which is a great word. We shouldn't shrink back from these theological words. We need to define them. We need to help people come to grips with them. But we shouldn't jettison them. And propitiation is one of those words that we we can't afford to jettison. And it means to appease an angry deity. That's what the Greek word meant. To appease an angry deity. We could use this to make satisfaction. To make satisfaction. To pay for what is owed. And what we owe for our sinfulness is our lives. The penalty of all of this sin is death. Here's a verse we don't like, Ephesians 2.4. We are by nature. We are by nature children of wrath. We don't like that, especially our kids. Because our kids are innocent angels. Well, maybe your kids. My kids aren't. I know that. Innocent angels. No. We are by nature children of wrath. That's a hard doctrine to come to grips with. Especially in American culture. Where we tend to sometimes think pretty highly of ourselves. And of our capabilities. And of our competencies. And of our capacities. But it was no different in Luther's day. Luther is developing here what theologians are come to call, what Luther calls his theology of the cross. Now he contrasts this with what he calls a theology of glory. We're going to look at this next time. He, he first works this out at Heidelberg, at the city of Heidelberg, in a disputation there in 1518. And in 1518, Luther contrasts this, the theology of glory with the theology of the cross. Now, usually glory is a good word. I like it. We should talk about glory a lot. He's not talking about God's glory. He's talking about human achievement. And the answer to human achievement is the cross. In fact, Luther says this. The cross is God's resounding no to human effort and human achievement. 
The cross is God's resounding no to human effort and human achievement. This theology of the cross was actually something Luther was talking about in the 95 Theses. Even though by his own admission he hadn't fully come to grips with the gospel, he was knocking on heaven's door in 1517. And the very last thesis, number 95, is this. Beware of the one who says, peace, peace, and there is no peace. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet. Beware of the one who tells you, peace, peace, and there is no peace. Instead, listen to the one who says, cross, cross, and there is no cross. And in Latin, he's playing off the words, peace is pox, cross is crux. Pox, pox, crux, crux. What's he saying? All of Luther's contemporaries, all of Luther's contemporaries were content with the status quo. And the status quo was merits and demerits. And you have a lot of demerits. Just ask your spouse. You have a lot of demerits. But that's okay. Because there's a thing called sacraments. That are, this is an awkward English word, graces. We've got to quantify it. Graces. And our quantity of merits, graces, need to outdo our quantity of sins, demerits. And don't worry about it if you can't do that because there are saints. And saints have more merits than they need. And they're actually in a treasure chest up in heaven. And the church taught at this time, the church taught that these saints' works, they had a technical term for this, they were called supererogation, which isn't uh, irrigating a field, it's not spelled that way. It's E-R-O. Works of supererogation are works above and beyond what you need. And all those extra works went into a treasury chest. And you could appeal to them for you. That's why Luther was appealing to St. Anne. Because of all those graces she had. That's why Mary is at the top of the chain. Because all of those graces that she has. I went to a Bible college outside of Philadelphia, and that college campus used to be an old convent. And when I was a sophomore, I worked in the admissions office and gave tours to prospective students. And I loved to take them into the library because the library was the old chapel, and it still had the stained glass windows from its convent days. And one of the windows was a picture of Mary, and underneath it said, Love Mary and lead others to her. And I used to love to take these tours of prospective students and their parents right up to that window and point out the window and read it to them and say, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and the next semester, admissions did not rehire me back. As a tour guide of the campus, I can't figure it out. And then there's purgatory, where you will be purged of those remaining sins so that you will be fitted for heaven. In the 95 Theses, Luther attacks what you have out on the table there to entice the children. Indulgences. And the penance system. And when he says, beware of the prophet who says, peace, peace. He's saying the system of merits and demerits is empty. And at the end of that road, there is no peace. Because no matter how many merits you can rack up, you'll never attain the level of the righteousness of God. So listen to the prophet who says, cross, cross, crux, crux. And then, what do you find out? When you get there, there is no cross. Because Jesus 
is on the cross and not you. Because Jesus is bearing the cup of God's wrath and not you. Because Jesus is earning, earning and meriting and winning the satisfaction of the wrath of God and not you. Because Jesus is on the cross and you're not. And that's the gospel. Where do we meet this holy God? Where do we, a sinful people, meet God? We meet him at the mercy seat. We meet him in Christ on the cross. And that's Luther's theology of the cross. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Paul cannot make this any more clear as to what is at stake. Paul cannot make this any more clear as to what is his intention of what the gospel does and what we don't do. By my count, about nine different ways Paul stresses that justification is something that is done to us. That salvation is a work of God from start to finish. About nine different ways of saying it. Let me highlight the phrases for you as we go through here. First of all, it's the righteousness of God, verse 21. And that should immediately throw you back to Romans chapter 116 in the gospel. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And what happened in between chapter 1, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 21? Paul told us how condemned we are, how guilty we are. And the very first words... Of Romans 1, 18, after we're told the gospel is the righteousness of God, after his introduction to the epistle, the very first word is the wrath of God is revealed. Wrath and condemnation and sin and guilt. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, verse 10, he strings together about a dozen Old Testament texts. And with each one, he further drives the nail into our coffins of our sinful selves. And he leaves us with the conclusion there's none righteous, no, not one. Not a single one of us. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, This is new. This is not something the law can do for us. But the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system is a pointer. It's a pointer to Christ. A great word I learned in seminary is Christotelic. We hear of Christocentric, that Christ is central to the gospel. Here's a great word. Christotelic. T-E-L-I-C. It means this, that Christ is the purpose. Christ is the end. Christ is the the target to which everything is being driven. And the Old Testament is one grand Christotelic verse of driving us to Christ in His coming, in His cross, in His resurrection. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's justification by faith alone. What all we do is put our faith in Christ. And even that is a gift from God. It's not about us. It's not anything we can do. It's in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. I think he's playing off here of the Jew Gentile when he talks about no distinction. But it's large enough to encompass all of humanity. For all, all of humanity, Jew Gentile, no distinction have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified. See how passive that is? 
This is how Luther went from hating God to loving God when he realized that the righteousness of God is not something he earned. It's not active. It's passive. It's something Christ does for us. And so he's able to move from hating the righteous God to loving the righteous God. In fact, he says this, those words, the righteousness of God, are the sweetest words in the language to me. What a move from hating God to extolling the righteousness of God. Because we're passive. We are justified by His grace as a gift. Again, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through His work on our behalf. Now Paul tells us a little bit something about this Jesus. This Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as our mercy seat, by His blood. His precious blood that we sinners stand under the fount of Emmanuel's veins. And it is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. How many more ways can Paul say this, that God does it to us? And why does he say all this? Because of verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. God has designed his program of salvation this way so that it reserves the glory for him alone. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish so that we glorify Him. Who can boast? Who can boast? It is excluded because it's God's work. And all we can do is glorify Him. I threw in Romans 5 as a bonus. If we go back to Romans 1.18, we have the wrath of God. In between Romans 1.18 In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have the doctrine of justification. Paul deals with our condemnation in chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20. He deals with justification from chapter 3, 21 to the end. And in chapter 4, he brings out Abraham as the classic example of salvation by faith. And then he gets to chapter 5, and this is what he says. We have peace with God. And how do we move from wrath to peace? Justification by faith alone. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, skip over that next phrase and go to the next one. We have been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the given. That's the reality. That's the statement. And what results from that? You and I, sinners. Sinners at our root, Luther said. He used the Latin word radix. We think the English word radical comes from that, extreme. It's actually that radish comes from that. When you eat a radish, you're eating the root. That's what radix means. We are sinners to the core. Ugly, filthy, rotten sinners. And we ugly, filthy, rotten sinners have peace with God. When we say crux, crux, there is peace. Peace is a wonderful word. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga define peace as the way things are supposed to be. Complete and utter wholeness. It's what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. Fellowship unfettered, unmitigated, unclouded. Jonathan Edwards is going to come along and tell us that in heaven we're going to be unclogged. 
I think that's a hilarious expression. Like we're all going to down a gallon of Drano and we're going to be unclogged. You know what we have right now? Clogs. Sin. But think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with each other. Adam and Eve never fought. Never even bickered. I have no idea what they said to each other. Oh, come on. That was a joke. See, those without spouses here laughed. Those with spouses here said, Oh, I can't laugh at this. Because my spouse is next to me and I can't laugh at the Harmony. And then sin enters the world. And Eve turns on Adam. And Adam turns on Eve. And Cain turns around and kills his brother. And strife and havoc flood like a torrent upon the globe. And all of that wholeness and peace is shattered all the way down through so that even the ground has thorns. Isaac Watts sings that great hymn, or wrote that great hymn for us. To me, it's one of the best hymns of the whole world. Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics. Handel wrote the music. Now that's a combo. We only sing it at Christmas, though. But there's a phrase in that hymn, as far as the curse is found. How far does the curse go? It goes right into the very ground itself. And Jesus comes to set it all right again. And his work of redemption goes as far as the curse is found. And that shalom that was disturbed, disrupted, vandalized, scandalized, perverted at the fall is restored through Christ and his work of justification for us. We have shalom. We have shalom with God. And we have shalom with one another. And someday, that perfect peace will be restored. And there's a little phrase in Revelation chapter 20 that Christ is restoring. Ta panta is the Greek. And the English is all things. It's not a whole lot that comes out of the purview of all things. In Revelation 20, we are told, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we have because of Christ's work for us. That's shalom. That's peace. That's wholeness. That's what a world desperately needs. And they think they're going to find peace in this thing. Or peace in that thing. Or a resolution to their conflict in this thing. It's only going to come through the gospel. Luther is a one-note theologian. But if you're going to have just one note, why not make it this one? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is the hinge that moves us from the wrath of God to the peace of God. That's the gospel. Luther is not only an educator, musician, politician, theologian. He was also a family man. Talk about this very quickly. You are a gracious audience, and I will be quick to finish this up for you. A monk marries none. Luther actually helped nuns escape, and he had a friend, Leonard Kopp, who was a fish merchant. And Kopp would go into these convents with his wagon full of fish, and he would, he would get there late at night. And this was all prearranged. And in the middle of the night, nuns who wanted to escape would get into the... He would go with barrels of herring and cod, and he would 
empty them out, and then they put the barrels back on the wagon. And in the middle of the night, the nuns would come out of their rooms and hop in the barrels. And then he would drive them right out of the gate next morning for anybody who knew it was happening. Not a very romantic way to escape, but effective. <laughs> and at the Nimshin convent, Cop got a dozen nuns out and they go back to Wittenberg. Luther once said that I started this whole Reformation thing just so that I could become a matchmaker. Because all these nuns and monks would come to him and want him to match him up with somebody to get married. And these nuns would come to Wittenberg to marry his students and he'd marry them off matchmaker that he was and there was one nun in particular that was picky Katrina von Bora and nobody would do except Luther and so he marries her he says uh, I'm marrying her because I want to give a dig at the Pope he says uh, I'm marrying her because I want to put my theological mouth where my money is if I'm preaching of a married clergy I might as well get married And then he says, I'm marrying her because I owe my parents' grandchildren. Now, who would sign up to marry this guy? (laughs) But then he fell in love with Katie. Katie, my rib, he called her. Katie, my rib. Uh, I would give all of Venice, Luther said. He, He would never mention Rome. (laughs) that wouldn't be a good bargain in Luther's mind. (laughs) But I would give Venice for my Kate, he says. Sort of a sad story at the end of her life. But at the end of her life, a lot of Luther's friends deserted them, deserted her. He died before she did. She writes a letter to her sister-in-law and she says, I find myself clinging to Christ like a burr to a dress. a legacy of what Luther was all about. That here is wife in this desperate situation. That's what she says. Now, when the word got around, everybody rallied around her and they came to her support at the end. But this was a family that was not just up here on the pedestal. I think we think that of our church history figures sometimes. These are full dimensional people that lived and suffered and in sickness and in health and in life and in death. They lost an infant son and then their 13-year-old daughter died. Luther went in to talk to her. It was clear she was dying, and he said to her, it appears as if your heavenly Father is calling you home. And how we wish that you could stay here with your earthly Father, but your heavenly Father is calling you home. And a 13-year-old girl looks up at her father and says to him, it is as God wills it. And Luther left the room. He broke down astounded by the faith of his daughter. In fact, when she died, he locked himself in his room for two weeks, went into a deep depression. This is not someone who floated through life six inches off the ground. This is a family man who experienced the challenges of life. And through it all, look at the faith of his family. You want to judge a man's faith, look at the legacy of their family. And here's his daughter and here's his wife and the depth, profundity of their faith. I'll skip to the last one, Luther the pastor, and just say this. All of Luther's work, all of Luther's work was in the context of the church. Read the New Testament, and you will find there is one institution that God blesses. There is one institution that God has ordained And it is the church. And Luther made an interesting statement. Not only do we come to Christ at the cross, but he said, the church under the cross is what people see. What does it mean to be a church under the cross? It means to be a church that is centered on, that will die for the gospel. And that that is what a world who is under the wrath of God and all of the throes of the conflict, the alienation of God and of each other, and the unending restlessness of our souls 
that gnaws away at us that says this isn't right. That what that world needs to see is the gospel in Christians and lived out in the church so that they too will know what it means to move from the wrath of God to the peace of God having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.